Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm I'm very excited about the guests that we have. You know, we're going to be learning quite a bit about software, about therapeutics. Say, so, I mean, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Corey McCann. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So originally born in a small town in Pennsylvania. So how was life growing up? <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in a very small town called Ole, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, uh, sort of right at the borderline of uh, Philadelphia uh, suburbia. I'm a big time Philadelphia Eagles fan. And I, I think beyond that, it was a very traditional American upbringing. Very cool. Very cool. So then obviously you got into, into Penn State, but what got you into, into biology? I guess I come from a scientific upbringing. My mother was a small college biology professor growing up. And so while most kids were sort of out being pushed towards sports, uh, I got pushed towards science. And I can remember uh, the excruciating task each year uh, of the year's science fair project. It, it was an annual ritual. And so I guess science was sort of ingrained in me from a very young age. So then after, after university, after college, I mean, you decided to go uh, the route of perhaps, you know, like more the neuroscience, right? I mean, is that right? I mean, what, what, what pushed you in that direction? Um, you know, I've, I've always been really interested in the brain, interested in sort of why the brain thinks about what it thinks about. And I put in a, a lot of years of schooling. I, I trained as uh, what's called a physician scientist. And so it was sort of one part um, traditional doctor training. So I'm, a, I'm an MD by training. And then I also did lots and lots of bench side research. And, and that was all in cellular and molecular neuroscience. So talking about, you know, how the brain functions. So in this case, how did your brain function? I mean, how did you decide to go from being a researcher to perhaps getting on the investment side? You know, I think a recurring theme for me is uh, being a, a jack of all trades and master of none. But, uh, you know, I, I really do believe that there's value in the world today studying at the interface between different disciplines. And I think for me, whether that was science and medicine or whether that was uh, science and investing, uh, I think if you look at a lot of the people who are able to really deeply impact society, 
they're not just pure play experts, but they straddle multiple disciplines. And so really, as I was starting to look at how these different technologies go from just cool science projects and really turn into uh, self-sustaining companies that are able to impact people, I I really saw uh, venture capital in the investment world as being the discipline that's really in charge of deciding what moves forward and what doesn't. And so I, I did a lot of work with a small firm called Rivervest Venture Partners. And I was sort of one of the people at the front of the line who turns uh, the pile of lots and lots of pitch decks into a smaller pile of pitch decks for uh, deeper exploration. And I think across seeing lots of those opportunities, just got very compelled that starting companies and allocating resources toward companies was something that I was highly passionate about. And, you know, in your case, I mean, obviously you did, you know, you were an associate at Rivervest. Then you went to McKinsey to do consulting and then MPM Capital. So I guess you have two of the of the big things, you know, that arm you to be a Swiss Army knife when it comes to being on the operational uh, role, perhaps as a founder and executing a company from the ground up. Uh, in this case, you know, you perhaps develop that pattern recognition, perhaps also the way to grab a, a, a big problem and maybe like break it down into smaller problems. So how do you think that that consulting side and investment side has really, you know, armed you with the right set of tools to really execute on the operational role? I mean, I view a lot of these things as opportunities for skill building. And so, um, you know, I, I think that the, uh, the clinical medicine piece allowed me to understand how these different technologies impact patients and how they're utilized. Um, I think the science piece helped me to really understand what it looks like to explore and answer questions. And then I guess as I think about the later chapters, I happen to really love problem solving. And one of the things that I loved about being a consultant at McKinsey is that you have the ability to solve problems incredibly rapidly and bring them to impact. And so really thinking about how to break down and structure problems, thinking about how to communicate what are very complex situations and solutions to multiple stakeholders I absolutely think about that as part of my McKinsey training. If you ask the people that I work with, I also really love PowerPoint slides. And so uh, that's been kind of deeply ingrained um, in my mind. As I think about the, the venture world, you know, really there's a lot to be understood in terms of how a venture portfolio operates and what it's like to allocate resources into development stage companies. And so I think being able to almost put myself in the shoes of the investor has been a skill that's been really, really valuable in company creation and company development. So then let's do a little bit of a deep dive into the venture world and more specifically into your baby, Pair Therapeutics. So tell us about how, you know, this company comes together. Yeah, and I'll try to bring all of the chapters together. You know, so if if you really think deeply about the way that the brain learns and about the way that the brain is treated for many different disease conditions, it's really at the interface of some sort of a molecule and experience. And I guess a really good example there is if you're to go to the physician because you're depressed, you'll likely receive um, uh, an SSRI or a specific drug. But that drug is only indicated to be used in combination with talk therapy. And it's really because the brain's activity patterns work together with these different molecules. 
And that's how you get to impact. And so um, as an investor, I was looking at lots and lots of different new drugs for different brain-related conditions. And as you probably know, those have been some of the more difficult conditions to treat across all of the conditions in medicine. There are lots of stories about developmental stage drugs failing in very late stages when it comes to treating brain-related conditions. And so it occurred to me that the thing that people hadn't tried was to really turn that cognitive experience into the equivalent of a drug. And so this was sort of the early kernel of what at the time we thought of as software as a drug. That space has become called digital therapeutics. And what we've tried to build at Pair is really the company that develops that space and brings digital therapeutics to patients. So then let's talk about like what were the early days like of Pair Therapeutics? Yeah, so when, when we first started um, looking at this space, we really thought that there was an opportunity to start a fund. And so um, as, we, as we looked at the space, we went out and we identified several hundred different interesting technologies, but we just didn't see management teams that were really poised to bring these technologies with the rigors that it takes to ultimately make them mainstream medicine. And so fairly early on, we decided that a fund structure was absolutely not the right approach here, but that there was the opportunity to really build an aggregator. And so what we did was we went out and we effectively rolled up or in-licensed many of the interesting technologies that we saw again in academia and in small companies. And we brought them onto a shared platform which was built within paratherapeutics. And then one of the things that's sort of very interesting about this space of digital therapeutics is that it's almost a hybrid between a tech space and what it takes to develop a pharmaceutical product. And so we built up really what were hybrid sets of skills. Uh, we have tech experts. We also have healthcare and pharma experts. And we really tried to meld those two disciplines within the company's DNA from day one. So then in this case, I mean, for a company of this nature, I mean, you need quite a bit of capital to uh, support the growth and to really build it up. How much capital have you guys raised to date? So we've raised uh, approximately $250 million all told, and we just closed an approximately $80 million Series D led by SoftBank. Nice. Very well done. Congratulations. So so for the people that are listening now to just kind of like get a... Um, an idea on, on perhaps the scope or the size of, of pair therapeutics? I mean, anything you can share on maybe like employees or anything else? Absolutely. So we're uh, approximately a 200-person company. And uh, pre-COVID, we were split between Boston and San Francisco. We really, again, think about ourselves as sort of the first fully integrated digital therapeutics company. And what I mean by that is that we have people that discover these new digital therapeutic products. We have a team or teams that develop them within clinical trials. We have teams that work with the regulators like FDA, and then we have a commercial footprint as well. So we have sales teams that work with clinician prescribers, and then also teams that work with payers, said differently, insurance companies. So then in this case, uh, for you guys, you know, obviously, 
there was a before and an after with COVID, right? So before COVID, you know, the people that would be on the cover of of magazines, you know, it would be the the good looking, you know, SaaS AI type of stuff. And now it seems that that after after COVID, you know, now the people that are on the on the magazines is doctors and nurses. So how would you say that this new perhaps reality or normal that we're heading into has impacted your guys' business? Yeah, I think I think personally, there's never been a cooler time to be a scientist. Um, it's been <laughs> it, it, it's just been incredibly refreshing to see, in many cases, uh, people that I know personally save the world. And I don't I don't mean to say that to be hyperbolic in any way. It's just been amazing to see the efforts to bring together what was just uh, you know, amazing science and turn that into some of the first COVID vaccines. From the perspective of PAIR, this has really pushed remote care and remote access to healthcare to the forefront of everyone's thinking, investors included. And, you know, as, as we think about digital therapeutics, we had always thought that digital therapeutics would ultimately be prescribed via a telemedicine encounter. And so if, if you think about um, these different ways of treating disease, the telemedicine encounter offers a way, which is just a very brief window into the patient and to do it remotely and with a human on the other side of the encounter. The digital therapeutic really sits remotely in between all of the other times that the patient just can't be interacting with their telemedicine provider. And so we always knew that this was the case. And the moment that COVID rolled around, telemedicine exploded. And uh, in order to keep up with that trend, we've built what is the first um, telemedicine platform where patients can get diagnosed and prescribed a digital therapeutic without ever leaving their home. So then, I mean, obviously the the future, I mean, it's incredible how things are shaping up now and, and how fast, you know, they're shaping up, you know, in, in this world now that we're living in. So if you had, you know, let's say the opportunity to close your eyes and wake up in a world where the vision of pair therapeutics is completely realized, let's say, how, how does that world look like? Yeah, I mean, our vision is is relatively simple. We want software to be a mainstream medicine. And so as I, as I close my eyes and I think about that vision of the future, we see in the near term uh, software becoming a mainstream treatment for the condition of many different uh, brain-related diseases. And our first products are in uh, different forms of addiction and insomnia. So we have three FDA-approved products at the moment. Um, we really see those as the first wave, and we see a whole wave of products in different psychiatric and neurologic conditions thereafter. But then we'd really like to dream big. Um, we see several hundred opportunities extending well beyond different brain-related diseases where software can either work with drugs or work on its own to directly treat these different diseases. And so as I think about that version of the future, I'm heartened by a world where the patient expects software the clinician expects to prescribe that software, and those expectations really come together to bring this to the masses. So then, so then, you know, one of the things that 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 I want to ask you now is is one of the typical questions that I ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, you know, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, 
and have a chat with your younger self, Corey, maybe that Corey that you know was thinking about launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a company and why, given what you know now? Um, I, I think I would, t- I would just remind myself to, to check my ego at the door. I think it's easy to think that creating a business or creating a company is about the good moments. And I think as, as you're building the company, there are lots of good moments. And at times, it can sort of start to, to, to feed into your ego. Building a company is, is probably much more about your resilience and the way that you deal with all of the either neutral or not so good moments in between the good moments. And, and, and I think until you're in the trenches, you just don't quite have the right frame of reference as to how much good to expect, how much neutral to expect, and how many headaches to expect. And so um, I, I think if there's one thing that I could do, I would just reset my expectations to really know that success in company creation is about the ways in which one deals with adversity, much, much more so than it is about the ways that one deals with success. And in your case, I mean, how have you learned uh, to deal with adversity? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of entrepreneurs right now that are listening, uh, and we all know that the journey of, of building and scaling a company is not a straight line. It's, it's quite bumpy. So. So how, what, was, what, what was that lesson for you to learn about dealing with adversity? It's a bit contrite to say, but uh, fail fast and iterate. And I don't just mean when, when it comes to the creation of a software product. Um, I mean, with regard to everything that one does in the business. Um, I, I, think, I think really the way that I've been able to continue to, uh, to keep things moving forward is to make very rapid turns. Um, and that can mean uh, very rapid turns on an investment document. It can mean very rapid turns on a clinical development document. Um, I, I think we're really trying to get to uh, the Pareto principle embedded in any task or the, the 80-20 um, is, is what's at stake. But then also, since no's and negative results are so frequent, really being disciplined to be able to learn from all of those no's. And I think when you put those two things together, you wind up with what is a very iterative engine across any task that you're looking to optimize, be it fundraising, be it team building, or be it execution of the core business. And, and, and those two things for me have really been, they're things that I hold very, very near and dear to my heart. And on the, talking about the nose, I mean, that obviously, uh, we can relate that right away with, with fundraising. And, and in fundraising, you know, you guys have been, quite successful. I mean, what, what, what do you think, you know, was there like, um, like a turning point? Because I'm sure that during the early days, raising money was not that easy. I mean, at what point did you realize that it was starting to get a little bit easier when it came to knocking on, on doors of investors? You know, I, I don't know that there was a singular turning point. I, I think across each one of our fundraising rounds, we've really looked to work with the best investors and we've looked to use their risk capital in order to remove risk from the business. And so maybe this brings us full circle and back to thinking like an investor. You know, investors, um, even if they're early stage investors, perseverate on risk. And so I think having a very clear and sober appraisal of the risk remaining in the business at any given point sort of gives you your next inflection point and gives you what you should be looking to address 
with your current fundraise. And so I think we've just been very disciplined and very methodical about moving from stage to stage to stage and discharging key risks along the way. And going when we're talking about going from stage to stage, I mean, is it like a big transition when you go from early stage to growth stage? I mean, is there like, for example, you perhaps as a leader, I mean, that transformation that you need to experience in parallel with the business? I mean, how, how challenging is that? I think it's entirely specific to the business. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've done very deliberately is to bring investors from different disciplines into the company. And so we have some best of breed biotech investors, some best of breed tech investors, some best of breed medical device investors, and then even um, a big pharma investor in Novartis. And I think expectations for each one of those sets of investors are very different. So for example, in biotech, it's not surprising to do a $100 million Series A financing Whereas in tech, it would be highly surprising to do a $100 million Series A investing. And so I think really just being quite explicit and over-communicating about every investor's expectations for the business and getting them all aligned, um, that's really been something that we think about a good deal. Very cool. So what's in store, Corey, for Pair Therapeutics? What's coming? Yeah, we've got uh, three commercial products. It's our Reset and Reset O products for different addiction conditions and our Somris product for chronic insomnia. And in the near term, we are laser focused again on making those products mainstream medicine. Uh, what that means for us is that we continue to develop data in particular around the cost saving benefits of using the products. We continue to roll the products out to additional prescribers. And we are very highly focused on working with uh, insurance companies. In my world, that would be called market access. And so if we think about identifying the key risk for the business, our key risk at the moment is market access. Uh, said differently, it is communicating our value proposition to insurance companies. And so that is our near-term goal. And the moment we're able to take the risk out of that part of the story, We've built a platform that can create hundreds of assets and the success from our initial assets has positive read through to everything else in the portfolio. So it's quite an exciting time. That's amazing. Very, very cool stuff. So Corey, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So you can certainly more, learn more about Pear at uh, paratherapeutics.com. Uh, you can also reach me at Corey, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at paratherapeutics.com. Amazing. Well, Corey, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.